and welcome to the Zoe Health Podcast, a conversation where we explore topics that affect women's health and wellness and matter to you. I'm your host, Dr. Nontlantlas Tole, co-founder of Zoe Health, your all-in-one women's health and wellness platform. We love hearing from you and interacting with you, so please join the conversation in our community chat to let us know what your views are or to share your own stories about the topic we'll be covering today. For more information, please visit www.zoehealth.com. Zoe is spelled Z-O-I-E. We hope you love listening to the podcast. Please remember, any information we share here is not a substitute for a consultation with a qualified health professional. So make sure you book your next consult soon. Let's get started. I'm so excited about our topic today. It's a topic that I believe doesn't get the attention and airtime that it should, especially because there are a lot of women and families who need support in this area. So today we're going to be talking all things related to fertility. And my guest today, who's here to tell us a little bit more about this topic, as well as answer your questions, is Dr. Tasneem Mohammed. I'm so excited to have her here. She graduated from the University of the Witwatersrand in 2008 and has worked at Chris Honey Baragwanath Hospital, Edenvale Hospital, as well as Wits University. In 2018, Dr. Mohammed joined the BioArt Fertility Center in Saxon World and works there as a gynecologist and fertility specialist. She also works at Park Lane Hospital, where she consults in the afternoons. So, Dr. Mohammed, instead of just reading out your bio, I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. And um, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And I'm really excited to talk to you about this very important topic. Thank you, Noni. Thank you for the introduction and welcome to all the participants. So as Noni said, I am Dr. Tisni Mohammed, and I am an obstetrician and gynecologist uh, with a very special interest in infertility. I've been at the BioArt Centre now for the past uh, over three, almost four years now. And um, I actually um, have a serious passion for fertility. Um, I actually didn't see myself as an OBGYN. I always wanted to be a pediatrician, believe it or not. And when I'd finished my comserve, there were no posts in pediatrics, and hence I got a post in obstetrics and gynae. And uh, I loved it, fell in love, and never, never looked back. It is the most rewarding um, thing to actually help women have uh, babies, you know, to bring a new, new life into the world. It's, it is really amazing. And I suppose fertility is um, on the other end. So our now patients who actually are struggling to have babies and helping them. And it makes that experience even more fulfilling to have someone um, actually conceive a baby, not just delivering one. Um, I love my job. In fact, my son um, was, wanted to go fishing the other day and he um, tells me that he loves fishing so much, just like how, mommy, how you love your job. So um, I think if <laughs> that's just one way to say just how much I really um, am passionate about fertility and how much I enjoy um, helping women have babies. Um, so I suppose enough about me. Um, maybe we can go on to your, the rest of your questions. Um, so, Dr. Zazneen, let's start at the beginning. How do we define, you know, just to a broad definition of fertility as well as infertility? Fertility, obviously, the ability to to have uh, a pregnancy, to, uh, to conceive, um, and to have uh, an off and have an offspring. Um, infertility, on the other hand, there is a it's, it's actually classified as a disease. Okay, there's a WHO definition of infertility, and when would someone have a problem with um, or fertility or infertility, and that is the inability to conceive um, after trying. Uh, so basically, having natural uh, intercourse, regular intercourse. So that um, that does form part of the definition. If someone is um, not conceiving, but maybe they're having intercourse once a month, for example, it might not be um, really going to the definition of infertility. So it's the failure to conceive after having regular intercourse. And um, the, the definition has also been one year, so after trying for one year. At what point should we start thinking personally um, in, in terms of my story when it came to having a baby? You know, I wasn't really thinking about what would happen further down the line when I was in my early 20s. Um, so, you know, I started on contraception. I found the one that was working for me. And I didn't necessarily give thought to how I was taking care of my body to make sure that I wasn't affecting 
my chances of having a baby. So, you know, what would what is your advice to young women who are in their early 20s and not necessarily thinking about kids right now, but are there things that can happen to you earlier on in your life in terms of whether it's health or contraception methods um, that may affect your ability to have children? Okay, well, I think that's where education comes in. And I think all um, young women should want to have kids or not. And then if they do, they might not want to have kids right now, but they want to then preserve their fertility uh, going forward. Um, Obviously, like you mentioned, um, contraceptive methods, they need to be aware of. One of the misconceptions, however, is that the pill, being on the pill for for a period of time might affect their fertility later. And that is a misconception. Okay, so there is no association with a contraceptive pill use and uh, later problems with um, conceiving. Um, but 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 yes, I mean other forms of uh, contraception that they might want to be uh, uh, aware of. I mean um, condoms are very important contraceptives, especially in our young patients, because we don't only want to um, prevent pregnancy but prevent STI infections, which can affect fallopian tubes and can affect um, be a cause of fertility at a later stage. Um, so that comes in with education. So educating um, now, maybe only wanting it at a later stage, they need to be aware that unfortunately there is a biological clock and that as one gets older, that egg reserves do decline with age and uh, so does egg quality. So, um, I mean, it, it, in no way must they, you know, uh, um, hopefully, unfortunately, everything comes at a, at a compromise and we have to to remember that. But if career and, and things like that is extremely important and it is the time where they need to um, you know push forward with their career but they would like to have a family at a later stage then to let them know that there are options there are options um, like egg freezing um, so that at least they have some kind of an insurance policy at a later stage obviously it's not a guarantee that they will have a baby but um, at least they know that they have that and they can um, reassure themselves or at least set their mind at ease that, you know, they have that. Hopefully they don't ever need those frozen eggs and that when they're ready, they will conceive. Um, but if not, then at least they've got those eggs frozen and it's frozen at an age that it's, um, you know, they still have a good chance at fit, uh, fertility potential and, um, you know, chromosomal issues and that are not such a, a, a big concern when we freeze our eggs in our younger years as uh, if we were to freeze later or try to conceive later. Okay, so when we talk about egg freezing, um, let's expand a little bit more on that. So what age are we looking at for the minimum? How early? Uh, when is the best time? When is it too late to freeze your eggs? And what's the whole process? How do you go about doing that? There is no exact minimum or maximum age. Some people at 35, 36, 37 are still wanting to freeze their eggs. And that is fine. And we would still encourage it if they came in at at that stage, because still freezing at 36 is still going to be better than 40, for example. But ideally, if one would freeze eggs, the ideal age is in your 20s and even in early 30s, I would say up to the age of 32, ideally, um, because then we know the risk of chromosomal problems in those eggs are much lower the quality of those eggs will be much better. Their fertility potential for later fertilization and embryo development in pregnancy are much better. Um, But there is no like textbook specific age that if you're over this age, you can't uh, freeze your eggs. That that, that doesn't exist. So the process of egg freezing um, is similar to your um, IVF process. However, it, it stops at egg retrieval. Okay, so it will involve stimulation, so stimulation of the ovaries. And usually we go with um, in- injections. So it will be injections which the patient will inject themselves to stimulate the ovaries to grow follicles, follicles or eggs or sites. They will then be doing ultrasound monitoring to monitor the growth of these um, follicles. And when they're at the right size, and that's usually at about 18 to 20 millimeters, we will be giving them a trigger shot that is to mature the eggs and then we retrieve the eggs. The retrieval is done through a procedure called an aspiration procedure. This is either done under conscious sedation or general anesthetic because it does involve um, a needle uh, being injected into the to the ovaries in order to retrieve the eggs. And obviously, if the patient is not asleep, this, this can be a very painful procedure. And usually, if, if it's a couple undergoing IVF, the eggs will then go to the lab and they will then, the male partner will give a sperm sample and they will fertilize the eggs and go on to embryo development and um, embryo transfer. But if it's an egg freeze, 
it will basically be the eggs will go to the lab. They will um, um, uh, prepare the eggs and they will look at the maturity and um, all of that. And then they will freeze the eggs. Um, and then the process stops there. Ideally, we aim for at least a minimum of 15 eggs if we're trying to do egg freezing. And this is from the literature and the research that has been done in order to guarantee, well, not guarantee, as I said, there's no guarantees, unfortunately, but from the literature in order to try and achieve at least one pregnancy, one would need at least 15 eggs. So 15 eggs, um, it's, it's a lot more than um, embryos because remember, it's again egg freezing, the egg still needs to be frozen. And then later, for later use, it will need to be thawed out, fertilized, so the, some eggs can be lost in that process. That's why we aim for a big, bigger number of 15. Um, if, the, if the patient has a, a partner and maybe they're married, but they're just not sure that they want to have kids right now, we could also offer them the option of embryo freezing. So in that way, we fertilize and then make a little embryos and then freeze the embryos, just not transfer them into the womb. Um, embryos do freeze a whole lot better um, than eggs. So if they do have a partner and that is something that they would consider doing, then we would definitely encourage that option. Um, and then if you're freezing your eggs, how long are those eggs viable for? I mean, if I'm in my early 20s, how long do I have once the eggs are frozen? Many, many years. Many years. Okay, eggs can be frozen. And um, the, the freezing process has also changed over the years. It used to be uh, a slow freeze, and now there's a quick freeze called fortification. The um, eggs freeze a whole lot better, less crystal formation, and they can survive for many, many years. We've had people who've maybe had em, um, embryos from uh, or eggs even frozen sometimes 10, 10 years coming back and using it and the, we've achieved pregnancies. So they can freeze for a long time and they freeze very, very well generally. Okay. So as you mentioned, you said it's about a year of trying regularly to get pregnant. So when a couple first comes to you and says, Dr. Muhammad, we've been trying for a year and nothing is happening. What, what do you look at? Are you looking at the lifestyle um, are you doing some tests? Are you looking at, someone was asking about uh, weight. Um, what are the things that you, how do you first assist a, a couple? You have to look at everything. You have to look at everything. And so it's not only like you're saying of the patient, it's the couple. So we need to basically, now it's, they've been trying regularly uh, for past for a year and nothing's been happening. So we there's a problem. So we need to see what, what the issues are. Okay. Um, even those that have been trying for a year and nothing, I mean, they, they, they could still potentially conceive naturally, but we don't want to send this patient away and say, oh, go and try for another year. We want to make sure that there isn't a problem that needs to be fixed, that needs to be addressed, that we can assist with. So it's workout. So it's investigations and work. For the male, um, the, the basic investigation or the cornerstone is a semen analysis. So just a basic semen analysis, just to see if everything is okay there. Um, in terms of sperm counts, sperm motility, sperm morphology, that is the way the sperm looks under the microscope. And just to see, there, there's, there's uh, reference ranges and parameters to see if it falls within the normal range. And on the female side, there's unfortunately more, more issues. Okay, so it's not just uh, in the male, really, it's the one cornerstone. There's a few things on the female. So we will need to have um, a full examination. So a head-to-toe examination, um, remembering that other, other things can also affect fertility, including thyroid, including well, many things, like you said, weight, lifestyle, all of those things, all of that needs to be considered. Um, so it's a full examination, um, abdominal examination, doing an ultrasound um, to look at the uterus. So when we're looking at the ultrasound, um, when we're doing an ultrasound, the aim is to see if there's any uterine pathology. So looking at the uterus, are there any growths, are there any fibroids, are there any polyps? Looking at the endometrium, does the endometrium look good? Depending on where in the cycle, is it appropriate? Is it uh, too thick? Is it too thin? Is it Does it look scarred? Um, we want to look at the ovaries. When we're looking at the ovaries, we want to assess um, the ovarian reserves. We want to see, does the egg reserves, does the egg number look appropriate for the age? So again, it's age specific. Um, and then other investigations, which one might want to do in terms of blood, blood, blood investigations, blood tests, looking at the hormones. Um, one might, from history, be uh, concerned about possible tubal pathology. For example, if there's a history of previous STI infections, um, secondary infertility, meaning they've conceived before and now they're struggling. Uh, we know in South Africa that is one of the leading causes of secondary infertility is tubal problems. We might send them for further uh, investigations on the tubes, like uh, HSG, so histocalpingograms to look at the uh, patency of the tubes. 
And also, depending on what we see on scan, we might be suspicious of things like endometriosis. We might find um, telltale signs on, your, on the ultrasound, which maybe we want to then do a laparoscopy to see if we can clean up the endometriosis, resect it, restore the anatomy of these adhesions. Um, so, it, I mean, it's, it's more about taking a good history, examination, and doing your further investigation so that you can, um, it's like, like a puzzle. Okay, so we're trying to put the pieces together and seeing which is the, where's the problem, which is the problem piece. And so we can address it and work, um, work out a plan as to the way forward in terms of treatment and falling pregnant. You, you mentioned endometriosis. So someone with endometriosis or, uh, for example, PCOS, are, there, are those people at higher risk of infertility? And what, what should they do if they already know that they have this type of, um, um, type of um, issue? Okay, so polycystic ovaries and endometriosis both can affect infertility, and it's probably the most common problems that we find amongst our women presenting with infertility problems. PCOS, fortunately, not um, one of the very difficult ones for us to assist. Problems with with PCOS is that they are not um, ovulating, so they're not ovulating. So we can assist them with ovulation induction. But again, lifestyle things make a difference. So we know uh, often patients with PCOS might have associated insulin resistance. They might have increased BMI. So uh, diet, lifestyle, um, you know, maintaining an adequate weight, those things will all assist with um, 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 optimizing the ability to, to ovulate or increasing the chance. Some women, by losing simply 10% of weight, will start spontaneously ovulating. Um, so that is um, for PCOS and uh, for endometriosis. If someone knows they have endometriosis, usually what will make someone suspicious of endometriosis is their symptoms. So women with endometriosis have very painful periods. They often have abnormal um, um, and bleeding, um, infertility is one of the things. Other things like pain on uh, defecation, um, uh, pain with intercourse, dyspareunia, those might alert the clinician or the doctor that this lady might have endometriosis. Um, they might then do the scan and see other signs of endometriosis, but not always. We don't always see um, evidence of endometriosis on a scan. But if there's a high suspicion of endometriosis, then uh, a laparoscopy is warranted. The laparoscopy is basically a keyhole surgery through the belly button to look for endometriosis, and at the same in the same setting can treat endometriosis at the same time. And once the diagnosis of endometriosis is made, the first surgery is the most important surgery, in fact, for endometriosis. But it will depend. Then is the is the plan pregnancy at this point, or is it just someone who's young has these symptoms presented? We found endometriosis, and they don't want a baby right now, but we want to maybe clean up and then preserve their fertility for later. So endometriosis is an inflammatory condition. It's very disabling and it gets worse with time. So untreated endometriosis will get worse and the adhesions will get worse and the fertility will get worse. So if the diagnosis is made early and they don't want a baby right now, maybe they're still a student, um, you might um, advise that maybe they go on to a pole, maybe they go on to treatments such as Visan or um, to, you know, to keep the endometriosis um, under control until such time as they desire fertility. And in very severe cases, you might also um, advise a freezing for certain cases. How long does that usually take once you're doing the, the investigation to find out um, what the cause of infertility is before you start to go on to the, the IVF or um, the, the fertilization process? The investigations don't generally take long. I mean, in terms of the basic investigations, your ultrasound, all of that, you're getting your results instantly as you're doing it. Okay, um, blood results, usually within a day we have blood results. Similar analysis, um, yes, they have to be scheduled because they have to um, abstain for a certain number of days. But, I mean... Usually within a week, that can be that can be uh, done, and then it will just depend on whether or not the patient requires any surgery or not, or HSG needs to be done. But usually the investigations are not not a, a long uh, long procedure before they they can all be done, and the patient can then be um, you know the the options can be discussed with the couple. Um, okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go to one of the questions here. Someone was asking that. She's been on the pill for a really long time, over 10 years. Um, and once you come off the pill after that length of time, I suppose any contraceptive method, after that length of time, um, are you? how long are you waiting? I mean, I know you said a year, but are we including the wait when you come off, the time that you come off your contraceptive? 
No, so you don't actually include that weight. And they, it is different with different forms of contraception. So with the pill, they usually uh, report six months. So we allow six months for the for the cycle to resume, to resume their normal fertility potential uh, as to pre-pill. So remember when you're on the pill, you're not ovulating. So your, your ovaries need to get back into the um, into the process of, of ovulating again. However, some women find that even though they've been on the pill for 10 years, um, the next month they go off the pill and bam, they're pregnant. So um, that is just really, it is, it is just a thumbs up, but usually we would say at least give someone six months um, after uh, stopping the pill for them to resume a normal um, ovulatory cycle again. And that can be longer with other forms of contraception like the injectables. So the injectables like your Depo-Provera and your Nusterate, um, the length for those can be anywhere between nine months to a year. Um, before one resumes um, ovulation and um, um, regular ovulatory cycles again. So the point is to start counting a year from when you start to regularly ovulate. Is that the is that the general rule? Yes. Okay. Talk us through the the options. Then you know you've done all the tests, and it turns out that you know you those particular woman or couple can't have conception through normal intercourse. What, what are your options? I mean, I know there's there's different types of ways in which you can conceive. I know there's IVF, but there's others too, right? What, what options do you have there? IVF and there's also artificial insemination, so or intrauterine insemination. Those are very uh, important maybe for your same-sex uh, female couples using donor sperm or uh, patients with have, who have coital issues or there's uh, maybe a male, uh, uh, um, a minor male factor, um, so maybe just a slightly low count or um, um, so not a severe male factor whereby we can concentrate the sample and assist with intrauterine insemination, timing, making sure the sperm is there at the right time of ovulation. Remember, the egg doesn't live for very long after being released. It's like 24 to 36 hours, and then we start getting regression of that. So the timing is important. Um, so apart from IVF, we can offer intrauterine insemination, but with intrauterine insemination, we must ensure that there are patent fallopian tubes, at least one. Otherwise, um, it's technically, it doesn't make sense in wasting your time. If there's uh, blocked tubes, there's no point in injecting the sperm into the uterus because it's not going to find its way to the egg. But that would be another form of uh, assisted reproduction. So it's um, either your artificial insemination or your intrauterine insemination, and then your IVF. And then it's not only IVF. So we get um, we get um, ICSI as well, which is intracytoplasmic sperm ejection, and that can be a treatment um, form used for severe male factor infertility, whereby there's very few counts of IVF won't work, or there's a, a problem with sperm motility, or we had to use maybe testicular sperm. Maybe there's an obstruction, so the sperm has been obtained via the testes. Um, you know, biopsy of the testes, that sperm will not be able to be used for IVF. It has to be um, injected directly into the egg. And there's many, 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 many other uh, op options that go with the, I suppose, IVF ICSI, um, which the laboratory will um, use depending on what, what, they, what their problems are and what they need to do. Okay. So if, I mean, what is my first option? As you've given, you said there are quite a lot of options mm -hmm. there, but are we what are we trying first? I mean, are we trying the insemin artificial insemination or does this, is this based on, you know, what your tests have shown about? It all depends on what, what your tests show. So if a couple, uh, if, a, if, if it's a young patient, she's got a good egg reserve, um, her tubes are fine and maybe it's just an ovulatory uh, problem like your PCOS patient. Um, sperm, there's no problem with sperm. Okay, then definitely ovulation induction would be your first route, insemination. But only if that fails, then would we require IVF. Um, but in certain cases, when there is blocked fallopian tubes or no fallopian tubes or a severe male factor, then we might have to start off with the IVF. Um, like in insemination is not going to be possible in that patient. So it's all about finding out what the problem is and then discussing it with the couple. Some of them maybe with a PCOS, maybe they've tried, it's a long-standing history of infertility, they have normal tubes. We can offer them ovulation induction with insemination, but they might have made up their mind that they want to do IVF. And that will come out from discussion. And um, um, obviously we take into account what they would like to do as well, discussing it. And if that's what they want to do, then that would be the treatment which we would offer them. Okay. So now once you've done the, the egg fertilization for IVF, two questions around that. Uh, what, what's the decision around how many embryos to implant? And also I've, I've heard a lot of stories about it, you know, failing often. What, mm -hmm. what is the reason for 
IVF rounds failing? So the decision on how many uh, embryos to put in will um, be decided on between the clinician, the embryologist, and the patient. So that is before any embryo transfer that needs to, to take place. Taking into consideration the patient's age, the, 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 the uterus, maybe someone has had multiple previous surgeries, we do not want a multiple pregnancy, then we would maybe say, let's put one embryo in. Okay, it also takes into consideration the quality of your embryos. Okay, we wouldn't, uh, if we put back two or three very good embryos, there's a possibility that all two and three are going to implant. So it will depend on the embryo grade on the day of um, um, implantation. Uh, it will depend on the patient's age, it will depend on what we have. It will depend on the uterine factors, like I've mentioned. Maybe the woman has a problem with implantation. She's had previous failed cycles. She's got, uh, um, you know, ut known uterine pathology. One might say, okay, well, let's give her the best chance. Let's put in a few more, maybe put in two or three sometimes even. But if it's a purely maybe back to your PCOS patient, right? She's firstly a very, um, there's no other issues except for the fact that she couldn't, uh, wasn't ovulating. We've got embryos, usually have very good quality embryos. She's usually young, young patients. We should only put back one. And there is a move to actually make that law now to single embryo transfer. It is law in some other parts of the world, not yet in South Africa. But if the new bill is passed, there will be um, a, a, probably a much greater move towards single embryo transfer. The reason for this has been because we know with multiple pregnancies, there are more complications. There are increased chance of miscarriage, increased chance of preterm deliveries. Babies spend a lot of time in the uh, NICU, um, depending on if they state patients. Um, the stay in an ICU every day is very expensive. So it does take a lot out of the system. So we want uh, one baby ideally, and we want one healthy baby. So basically, uh, to term, we know the more babies there are, the increased chance of them delivering uh, preterm. What would cause your um, a cycle to fail? I mean, what are some of the things that might be the reason for that? Okay, so when someone has a failed cycle, it is important to now troubleshoot. So if there's a failed cycle, we need to go back and we need to look. We need to look at everything that had happened in that cycle, even from the beginning. Okay, so what was the cause of infertility, right? What is the cause of infertility? What is the route that we chose? Okay, so for example, um, I don't know, endometriosis with damaged uh, tubes. Okay, so we do IVF. Okay, then we need to look, how did you stimulate? Was it an appropriate stimulation protocol that we used? Did you stimulate well? Did we get enough eggs? Did we get as many eggs as we expected in your case? Um, then um, how, did, how did the lab do? Um, so looking at the uh, laboratory uh, part of it, how many uh, fertilized from maybe we had 10 eggs, maybe only two fertilized. So what was the problem? Was it egg quality? Was it sperm quality? So we need to troubleshoot and see what happened. Okay. Um, then looking at your embryo grade, looking at your embryo grade, looking at your embryo quality. Um, is that a reason why uh, implantation failed? And if maybe we had poor embryo quality, what was the causes? Again, is it a male factor? Is it a female factor? Egg or sperm? Is there anything that can be done going forward? Um, then if maybe embryo quality was good, if uh, everything went according to plan, what, what happened with the transfer? Was there a difficulty with the transfer pr uh, procedure? Um, was there, um, um, you know, difficulty inserting the embryos, for example, a cervical stenosis or something that was maybe missed before? So it's basically troubleshooting each, each at each step to see if anything could have been done differently so that we try and prevent a failed cycle from occurring again. But in some uh, cases, everything could have been occurred as, as planned and no cause can be found. So do we just repeat it again? Um, in some cases, maybe the embryos have not been tested. We don't always do uh, pre-implantation genetic testing of the embryos. So while they might look like they're good quality embryo, they might not have been genetically normal. That could have been a cause for implantation failure. And then obviously the, the endometrial factors, okay? Was there, what, was the, what was the lining like? What was the progesterone like? What was, was it too thin? Was there fluid in the cavity? So it's basically looking at all the possible, and those are all the possible causes. You asked me that a little bit earlier on what can cause uh, a cycle to fail. So it can be all of those factors, uterine factors, progesterone factors, endometrial factors, embryo-related issues, fertilization, going back to the eggs and the sperm uh, parameters. Okay, great. Let's get to the questions. Um, Tendo asks, is there a specific reason why uh, medical consults for infertility are not covered by medical aid? I mean, you did say it's qualified as a disease, 
um, and the whole process is very expensive. Why? Why are the medical aids not um, covered? So the medical aids are actually very wrong in that sense, and there is a a, a, um, a move. It's, it, it, there's um, Ifasa that has been fighting this for years and years and years now. Um, and they've been um, trying to get medical aids to pay for it. In fact, it is classified as a, a, a disease and it's a PMB condition as well. So um, they should. They should cover. They should cover consultations. They should cover certain investigations. If you go through, um, um, suppose, the PMB, um, which, which is accessible um, on most um, medical aids, um, you will see the list of stuff that they're required to pay for. However, it's not very easy. So usually it will require motivation and it will require lots of forms to be filled in, but they should cover. Uh, and and it's, it's usually a battle. It's usually, it is, a, it is a battle to get them to pay. However, from January this this year, 2021, Discovery has started paying, um, and that, but only on the top options, so the classic comprehensive and the executive plans. And CAMF has been paying. Uh, they've been paying for some time now, but they also pay on varying uh, amounts with different options, different plans. And I think the fact that Discovery started paying is a very big, it's a very big step. And it's, we, 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 we welcome it because um, they are the biggest medical aid. And um, I think the fact that they're now paying, it, it will mean that a lot of other medical aids will have to follow or else they're going to lose a lot of uh, clients over to discovery. Uh, but it's still a challenge because they're only paying on the top plans. So usually the, the very few people are on those top plans. So it still makes it difficult, but at least it is one step in the right direction. Even HSGs and stuff, it actually is covered as part of a PMB. Um, it's just I think a lot of patients do not know, and um, medical aids will not tell you. Yes, you put up the fight for it. Yes, it's a lot of paperwork, a lot of motivations, a lot of uh, things to get it to get it through. Another question: Does weight have a major role in you being able to conceive? Definitely. Okay, definitely. And in some specific cases, some specific clinics will not treat you. Okay, if you are overweight, they will actually require that you go lose the weight and come back. Okay, it does have it does have an impact on your prognosis, your ability to fall pregnant, and also it has an impact on your ability to um, carry a pregnancy, to um, have a healthy pregnancy, and to have a healthy baby. Increased weight or increased BMI in pregnancy is a risk. It's a risk for gestational diabetes. It's a risk for hypertension in pregnancies. Difficulty with monitoring of the baby, growth problems in the baby, both extremes, so big babies, and sometimes the big uh, increased BMI can cause growth restriction um, in the babies. Monitoring can be difficult. Delivery can be difficult. Increased chance of uh, delivery complications, uh, shoulder dystocias where the baby gets stuck coming out if it's a vaginal delivery. Um, again, like I said, monitoring, the NST monitoring when the mom's in labor can be very difficult to see if the baby's doing okay. Um, with delivery seizures, increased risk of wound sepsis, um, with the increased weight. So it, it's, it is, it is ideal um, that if, if someone is extremely overweight, I mean, I'm not saying, uh, you know, just a little bit overweight. Um, I think then to with, withhold uh, treatment in those kind of cases is not fair, but um, your morbidly obese patients, I think for their own sake as well, it is advisable that they lose weight. And it will improve their prognosis because like you mentioned, it's not a cheap, it's not a cheap thing to do fertility treatment. So you want to be in the best shape that you possibly can be when you when you start this journey. Yeah, the best chance for you and your baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone is asking, are there any supplements that you can take that'll help your hormones get back on track? I'm assuming um um this refers to, you know, for whatever reason that your hormones are out of whack, whether that be, you know, coming off contraception or you know, dealing with some type of, of um, you know, reproductive um, disease. There's multiple, multiple products out there. If you go to Dischem Clicks and you look at the shelves, you see endless rows of products. Okay, a lot of them are just the basic supplements, all your vitamins and minerals, it's got your folic acid, which is essential for anyone trying to conceive. Folic acid is very important. Um, there are other supplements specifically for like your PCOS patients, your PCOS patients, where we know they've got problems with egg quality. So those ones with the coenzyme Q10 and acetol. Um, so you, I don't know if I should, I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention brand names. 
there's many, but like there's uh, Sinopol, Insumax, Picositol, Inofolic, there's, there's endless. And they, they all, they're all actually good products, okay? Um, and in your older patients as well, there's, um, there is a role for certain um, uh, products in the older patients. And in your older patients would, again, be looking at things that might improve your air quality. So again, your coenzyme Q10, myo, and acetal, and in those patients, even DHEA, so your um, supplements with your DHEA. EA has been shown to um, to improve um, pregnancies in those specific patients. Okay, you said something about improving egg quality. I know there's a question here um, about supplements for making sure that you have good eggs. Okay, so those would be uh, what I mentioned, those supplements in, uh, containing those ingredients. However, um, with, with egg quality, we know age plays a role. Okay, and a lot of the time it's also chromosomal issues that occur as one gets older in the eggs. And there's not too much that one can do to to to, to do about that. Okay, so it's just the, the fact that we are born with our eggs. We don't make more eggs. And over time in the ovary, they do accumulate changes. So we know that women who are having children in their later years, as they get older, are going to have a problem with egg quality and embryo issues. Mwafika um, is asking, should a laparoscopy always be done before considering IVF? Now, laparoscopy does not always need to be done. However, you might find that it is often done, okay? And the reason is sometimes um, um, there's a lot of things that might not be seen, that might not be identified on an ultrasound or from history that can be picked up with a laparoscopy. But no, it's not like you have to have a laparoscopy before one can do IVF. But it needs to be justified. It needs to be an indication. We need to know why we're doing the laparoscopy. Um, but no, it's not, it's not like it goes hand in hand. Um, and then when you find blocked tubes, is it possible to unblock them? I imagine it's, it depends on the cause, right? Depends on the cause, depends on where the blockage is, depends on how much normal um, the tube is left. Uh, it depends on the skill of the surgeon. Um, so it really, it really depends. Um, often it, it depends on also whether it was blocked, like for example, it was a a sterilization that is trying to be reversed. Even then too, it will depend on how the sterilization was done. Was the tubes uh, simply clipped with a a clip or were they uh, cut? Um, That might determine whether one can unblock it or not. Um, And sometimes even if a tube is maybe blocked because of previous infection, even unblocking it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to fall pregnant. Might then be patent, but the functioning of that fallopian tube, remember it's a muscle and it's got um, little, um, um, I suppose, silly, a little yeah, sort of in, yeah, in, inside the, 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 the tube that, that functions to move, um, um, you know, this, um, the egg and the embryo along um, and the functioning might not be very well. So even unblocking one's tubes doesn't necessarily mean you're going to fall pregnant. And if you do fall pregnant through those tubes, or anyone who's had tuberplasty for that matter, there would be a very high suspicion and high concern that one might have an ectopic pregnancy. So if um, one does have tuberplasty and falls pregnant, um, your gynae or or fertility doctor will often tell you, if you fall pregnant, you come as soon as you find out you're pregnant so we can check it's in the right place. Um, So... That is one of the, the risks, yes. Bumi asks, I'm going to put the two questions from Bumi and Leanne together. She says, okay. are there any recommended supplements to take when trying to conceive naturally? Um, and then specifically, Leanne asks, does glucophage help someone with PCOS trying to conceive? So what are the supplements? I know you mentioned folic acid, really good to... Folic acid is a must. Folic acid is a must. But we also find that a lot of women are also vitamin D deficient. Um, and sometimes other micronutrients that we don't even know about and don't even really check, um, you might be deficient in that. So if anyone is trying to conceive, folic acid is a must, but it's not, there's no harm and it will only be of benefit, definitely no harm to be in a nice prenatal supplement um, to take um, one of those, just a tablet a day. It's not going to do any harm. If you've got too much vitamins, all you're going to do is pee it out. So that's fine. So no. The only harm will be to your throat because those tablets are huge. <laughs> those prenatal vitamins are the biggest tablets I've ever seen. If someone is having a nice balanced diet, healthy diet, making sure they're having all their fruit, veggies, meat, protein. I mean, the, the supplements are just really just there to supplement. Um, they should be happier. Just to, and it's usually for the micronutrients and like the vitamin D. Surprisingly, you know, we get vitamin D from the sun, but probably more than 50% of women, if you check the vitamin D levels, they're actually deficient. So 
yeah, it's just good to make sure that we've got all our checks. So taking yeah. a little supplement will not have the harm. Yeah, okay. best to position yourself for success. Um, and the glucophage in terms of the PCOS? Okay. Glucophage is controversial to say the least, okay? So there have been studies and there have been big meta-analysis and things like that looking at glucophage. So glucophage is a drug which we use for diabetics, basically. It's for, um, okay, so it's a it's a bigonide. Okay? Um, let's not get into the what, what exactly it is. But we usually use it for our diabetics because we want to bring down their sugar levels, right? Now, in our patients with PCOS, there's often an association with insulin resistance. So they've got high insulin levels, but they've got normal glucose levels. So they're not diabetic, but their pancreas is producing, which is where your insulin gets produced, a lot of um, insulin in order to maintain a normal glucose level. So by giving them glucophage, we're just helping release, we're helping drop that insulin level slightly. But there's other ways that they can do that as well. And that's also diet, lifestyle, exercise. Anything that's going to reduce the sugars from the bloodstream is going to, again, have less, um, there's going to be less need for the pancreas to release this insulin so your insulin levels will drop. Okay, so there is a role in your PCOS patients, but in a specific group. So from the literature, from the evidence, and this is the evidence now, the only patients which will really benefit with the glucophage is those with the raised BMI. So those with the raised BMI and those PCOS patients who are resistant to ovulation induction medication. So we give them medication like Vamara or Clomid to um, cause ovulation, to uh, assist with ovulation. And we're scanning and we're seeing that we're not getting anywhere. We're going up with the dose and we're still not ovulating. And we're going up with the dose and we're still not ovulating. And then by giving them um, glucophage, we sometimes see that they, that makes a difference. And how that works is, again, um, because patients have an abnormal, abnormal um, hormones, they've got an abnormality in the FSH and the LH hormones. These are hormones that are produced in the brain. So FSH is the hormone that drives follicle development. Now, there's an imbalance with your FSH and your LH. And usually these patients have very high LH levels. So we need to drop the LH level or we need to increase your FSH level in order to get them to ovulate. So when we're giving them ovulation induction, your Fomara and your Clomid, that is increasing your FSH. But there's two ways to reduce this ratio. You can either increase your FSH or you can re reduce your LH. So you bring that closer together, right? You're reducing that ratio. And by uh, dropping your insulin levels, you will drop your LH. So one of the cheat ways to drop your um, um, insulin levels is to give glucophage. Okay, but it's not, it's not the mainstay. It's not the fix-it. Um, there is a role for it, definitely, but important, important in PCOS is the lifestyle um, changes that need to occur. Okay, so definitely something you should be talking to your doctor about and not just, you know, embarking on your own. That's that's also what I'm getting from what you're saying. Um, so yes. Also, yes, so we spoke about uh, chromosomal abnormalities, which you said, you know, has to do with the lifespan of the eggs and how long they've been around. Um, and that's, yes, we also did speak about egg quality. So I hope you answered your question. Um, Wafika asks, um, the general semen analysis test, does it also check for the lifespan of sperm after ejaculation? No. So it doesn't check lifespan, but it looks at motility of the sperm. And usually it will be looked at, the sperm will be looked at at various uh, time periods. So they usually look at it at 30 minutes. So that's when they receive the sample uh, after they process the sample, 30 minutes. They look at it at two hours and they look at it at eight hours. Or eight hours, depending on uh, certain labs, they're basically looking at the sample the next day to see how many of them are still motile or not. But remember, immotile sperm doesn't mean it's dead sperm. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know if you're asking about that, but other things that they also look at is the supravitality index on the basic semen analysis. They will also look at that. And that takes into consideration the um, uh, other parameters as well, counts, motility, morphology, um, to give you a vitality index. Um, but that's just a basic semen analysis. It's a lot more that can be um, done on a semen analysis. And in some instances, um, even though maybe the couple's not conceiving um, and uh, basic semen analysis doesn't pick up anything wrong, one can do further testing, like looking at DNA fragmentation testing, looking at you know mature versus immature DNA. That will all be more like specialized semen analysis testing. All right. Taro uh, asks, what is your opinion on taking... CoQ10 when trying to conceive? I'm not sure what that is. That's the coenzyme Q10. 
Okay, so it has been shown that it does improve your egg uh, quality. So it's not going to do any harm again. Take it. Okay. Are recurring chemical pregnancies a sign of infertility? Um, maybe we can talk about what a chemical pregnancy is first, because I suppose if you, yeah, if you're getting pregnant. They mean to say biochemical pregnancy. So basically you'll be doing a pregnancy test and the pregnancy levels will be, will be positive, but it might be very low positive levels. Well, if you're having recurring biochemical pregnancies, but not a pregnancy, then yes, there is a fertility problem. Um, but obviously it's not a problem with falling pregnant. It's a problem with the pregnancy itself and maintaining the pregnancy. So that would be someone who would need workup for recurrent pregnancy loss as well. So they would need to um, have investigations looking at if is there, is there an autoimmune issue? Is there do they have an antiphospholipid syndrome? Is there a bleeding issue? And definitely also chromosomal. Um, so checking is there a chromosomal issue, and that's why the pregnancy starts off but does not progress as it should be as it should. Um, okay, Keleto asks, how is adenomyosis treated? Maybe you can tell us what adenomyosis is first. Okay, so adenomyosis is. We often group it with our endometriosis, okay? And in some uh, instances, they even call it the endometriosis of the uterus. So it's in a way to describe it, it's a thickening of the muscle layer of the uterus. So your uterus is made up, it's, it's a muscle. So the myometrial layer is a muscle and it's the thickening of this muscle layer. And usually there is um, uh, increased uh, vasculature. It's usually a very soft uterus and increased um, vascular lakes. If we see on ultrasound, there's a specific appearance that we that we can identify um, to detect adenomyosis. And also we, 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 we clump it with endometriosis because it's often associated with endometriosis. So when we see adenomyosis, we, we suspect that, okay, this lady might also have endometriosis. And often if we, uh, do go and look for it, we'll find it. Uh, it's difficult to treat. It is difficult to treat um, because it's not like a fibroid, um, which is also a growth in the muscle layer, which we can go and cut out if necessary, um, because it's a global thickening of, of the uterus. There is some places um, and in some instances where they do operate for adenomyosis and they resect these big adenomyomas because it does take blood flow away from the endometrium, which is where the baby must grow, so the inside part of the uterus. Okay, but those are very tricky surgeries and not often um, not often done. And um, like I said, it is very tricky and 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 can and can go horribly horribly wrong as well. I think in I've seen a few videos of surgeries being done in India where they resect these adenomyomas uh, and they um, repair the uterus with the mesh and uh, very, very in intricate surgeries that, that have been done. I've seen um, some of them have been done in Vienna, um, but I don't really know if it makes too much of a difference um, and if the surgical outcome is actually ever that very good. Um, we do treat it sometimes, though, very uh, enlarged adenomyosis with uh, drugs which um, basically put your ovary into menopause. So, again, like endometriosis, it is hormonal, um, hormone receptive. So by basically putting your um, body into menopause for a few months, starving it of um, hormones, we can get shrinkage of the adenomyomas. And uh, these drugs are, for example, drugs like Solidex, um, so it's injections and um, there's monthly ones and three monthly ones. And um, if you do those treatments, you would need monitoring, uh, ultrasound monitoring to see if it's working, if there is shrinkage of the of the adenomyosis. Okay, but like I said, usually it's blood flow. It's, it causes blood flow to the uterus. They often have abnormal bleeding as well, these patients, and very severe period pains because the endometrium, again, it's like it's growing into the muscle layer. So um, they have uh, problems with, with bleeding and pain. Okay, so someone says she was on the pill, on and off the pill for five years, uh, 14 months trying to conceive, um, and the last six months has been seeing a specialist, did progesterone, estrogen, thyroid function test, everything was normal. They did the interuterine insemination, which was not successful. She's been on Cloma twice already. She also ovulates and produces eggs. What, what would you recommend the next step be for them? Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know if she's had all the other investigations done, like checking her fallopian tubes and things like that. That would be and making sure we've covered all our bases. Remember, even with intrauterine insemination, she's had that once. It's not 100%. Okay, in fact, 
natural success rate with intrauterine insemination is only 18 to 20% per cycle. So usually with that, we would be looking at a cumulative success rate. So she, I mean, it doesn't mean if she's tried it once, she can't try it again. Sometimes it has to be two, three times before one is actually successful. But also chat to the doctor, make sure you have a plan. Okay, so what are we doing? Are we going to try it again? Are we going to be, uh, how many times are we going to try it? Um, if we try three times and we're not successful, yes, what what went wrong? Let's looking at look at the cycle. How many follicles did I have? Uh, was it a good follicle? How did it go with the trigger? Um, what was there any other issues? Was the lining okay? What was the sperm like? Were there any sperm factors? What were the parameters? Before they do insemination, they will do a basic uh, analysis when they do the wash, they'll have a look at the sperm count, the motility. Was it okay? Um, and try to make sure that the next attempt is better if they're going to do another insemination or if there's um, other problems and maybe they need to do um, um, you know, other treatments. Maybe she needs to move on to IVF, depending. Okay. Uh, just the last question, Tasneem says, a 24-year-old female, does no period affect losing weight? Because, uh, Tazni, maybe you can quickly just pop your question in again, give us a little bit more context before we wrap up. Um, yeah, it says, does no period affect losing weight or PCOS? So I'm not sure. That's, I'm not really getting the proper context of the question there, but maybe. Uh, I think maybe, maybe she's saying that the fact that she's not having a period, maybe that's the reason why she's not losing weight. Uh, I think the no period and the weight problem is goes with PCOS. Yeah. Yeah. She's probably not. She's not having a period because she's not ovulating. But now we need to get her to ovulate. We need to get her to ovulate by making her uh, lose weight. <laughs> that is one of the one of the uh, ways that one might um, ovulate is by losing weight. Remember I mentioned sometimes even a little bit of weight loss can help with the hormonal imbalance and one can ovulate. Um, but yes, so it's not because she's period that she's not uh, losing weight. They, she's probably not getting a period because she needs to lose the weight. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for. I really wish we could talk a little bit more, but we have run out of time. But thank you, Dr. Tasneem. I'm so happy that you're able to join us. Thank you for your advice and your expertise. I think we definitely uh, were helpful today in answering some really important questions. And I hope we have helped you to take charge of your healthcare when it comes to fertility. And if you wanna continue this conversation or have any questions, please join our community on zoehealth.com where you'll find other women who are also thinking about fertility. Even if you're not thinking about it, there are women who are going through something that you're going through and are there to support and advise one another. So let's catch up on the community chat. And thank you so much for joining us today. Until next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please visit our website, www.zoehealth.com to share and rate this podcast and to access more content and resources like this. Join us on our next episode as we bring you more of the women's health and wellness topics that matter to you.